Wednesday, August 1st, 2012, episode number 11 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Streamer on footballnation.com. of the Football Nation Today podcast with yours truly, Alex Reamer, available on footballnation.com and via download in the iTunes store. Please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast and all the other great shows available at footballnation.com in the iTunes store. If you have yet to do so, we are now in the full swing of things here at footballnation.com. This past weekend, we set a traffic record. We thank all of you for that and all your support thus far with the website, the 2012 NFL season is still obviously in its infancy with training camp just one week old, but we set a traffic record over the weekend, hopefully one of many traffic records we set throughout the season right here at footballnation.com. Last week, we set a traffic record for the show, so we want to thank you all for your continued interest and support in this program. As always, we're taking your listener feedback either via the comment section on each show page, send me an email, areamer at bu.edu, or follow me on Twitter, drop me a line there. AlexReamer1 is my Twitter name. So we thank you all for the interest in the website, the interest in the show. Full swing of things, training camp now one week old. A lot of issues to discuss this week. The MLB trading deadline is over. It is now August 1st. So it does mean that we can now turn most of our full attention to NFL training camp. Very excited about that. The Olympics, of course, are going on. But in all honesty... I don't really give a crap about the Olympics. Women's swimming? Eh, just doesn't do it for me as a sporting event. I'd rather watch baseball or talk about football, which is what we're going to do today. Football Nation today, episode number 11. As always, doing our first down, second down, third down, and fourth down segments. Leading off in first down, we talk about some big general stories around this year's NFL training camp and all years of NFL training camp, including some key holdouts, Mike Wallace and Maurice Jones-Drew, Rookie quarterbacks, Ryan Tannehill, Andrew Luck, Robert Griffin III, how are they progressing? And which training camp storyline are you already sick of ESPN's over-coverage of? We'll talk about that. Then in the second down segment, Cowboys owner Jerry Jones promised that his team will kick the Giants' asses at Cowboys Stadium this season, which got me thinking on this subject. Would you want Jerry Jones, or a guy like Dan Snyder, owner of the Redskins, of course, Don't your football team, two guys that obviously care deeply about their team's successes, but who middle, and middle, I think, to um, their detriment in the football operations of their teams. We'll talk about that in second down. Third down segment, it's our big up slowdown, looking at a breakthrough team in the NFL this season. Will the Patriot offense be better than what it was in 2007? And Santonio Holmes says he's a scapegoat for the 2011 Jets season. Uh, That guy just doesn't get it, huh? We'll rant about him. Then in our fourth down segment, talking about something else. That's always irked me around this time of year regarding players coming into NFL training camps not in shape. That's the fourth down segment. It's the Reamer rant to close out the show. It's Football Nation Today. Back in a moment. So 
though, two big holdouts are taking place across the league, both on the offensive side of the football. And the one in Pittsburgh involves star wide receiver Mike Wallace, who, of course, is still currently holding out. And in his absence, the Steelers have signed wide receiver Antonio Brown to a five-year, $42.5 million contract, which now seems to be the going rate for wide receivers like Brown. That's the same deal the Redskins gave Pierre Garçon this offseason. Uh, so we've seen a lot of crazy money uh, having been thrown around the league over the past uh, six to seven months since free agency started back in mid-March. Um with wide receivers, and it looks like the Steelers have continued that trend, giving Antonio Brown a lucrative five-year contract worth north of $42 million. Um, but the Steelers are giving that money to Brown, not to Wallace. Some, including our own David Holcomb on FootballNation.com, wrote an article that's north of 9,000 views at the moment, are saying that Mike Wallace's holdout has backfired on him, as the Steelers have not given in to his demands yet, and instead, they've given their money to his teammate, Antonio Brown. Now, Holcomb makes a lot of sense in his article. It's a very coherent piece. I encourage you to read it. I, though, respectfully disagree with him. I don't think Mike Wallace has made a colossal mistake by holding out. Now, if Mike Wallace's utmost goal is to remain a Pittsburgh Steeler, then okay. Maybe he did make a big mistake by continuing to hold out a week into training camp and, as of this recording, beyond that, well beyond that, potentially. But I don't think that's Mike Wallace's first goal. I think Mike Wallace's primary concern is getting paid. And I think he's going to get paid. It may not be in Pittsburgh, but I think he's going to get paid. That's how these things usually end. Now, there is room, if the Steelers wanted to, for them to sign both Antonio Brown and Mike Wallace. We talked about this for the past several weeks on the show. In the NFL, you can play the salary cap whichever way you want, really. It's about the real dollars, not the cap dollars. You look at this contract the Saints gave to Drew Brees. It's the highest contract in NFL history. And the cap hit significant, north of $10 million for 2012, but not absurd. So what does that mean? It means you can structure the cap really whichever way you want, especially in regards to star players. You can be creative. Teams employ capologists in their front office for that exact purpose, to try to circumvent the salary cap. It's about the real dollars, not the cap dollars. And Mike Wallace, as a wide receiver, has been quite productive over the past couple of years, especially last season in 2011. Uh, Wallace, 24 years old, accumulated 72 receptions, 1,193 yards, and 8 touchdowns. He's still under his rookie contract at 24. He had a big 2010, arguably an even bigger 2011. We know about the short time span of NFL careers. Players have to get paid when they can. They have to get paid when their production is at an apex. And Mike Wallace, after two terrific years at wide receiver, he and his agent have determined that his production is at an apex. Now, unlike Darrell Rivas, and unlike Maurice Jones-Drew, who we'll talk about in a moment, Wallace has not already signed a big long-term deal that he isn't honoring. That's why I wasn't supportive of Rivas when he threatened to hold out earlier this summer, and that's why I still remain unsupportive of Jones-Drew, who's currently holding out with the Jaguars, because both Rivas and Jones-Drew signed long-term contracts already that they're now currently not honoring, and they're not in the final year of those deals. Jones-Drew has two years remaining. You have to honor the contracts you sign, especially when you're not entering the final year of it. 
It's a completely different situation with a 24-year-old Mike Wallace. He's still on his rookie contract, entering his fourth year in the league. He's had two elite years at wide receiver. In the NFL, non-guaranteed contracts, the high health risk, all of that, you don't know when it's going to end. You have to cash in now when you're a player performing like Wallace has for the past couple of seasons. He has to get paid now. Now, David Holcomb argued in his article that if Mike Wallace signed the $2.7 million tender the Steelers offered him, they would have done right by him. Maybe, and we would all like to think that, but there's no guarantee. It was never in writing. There was no guarantee that if Mike Wallace signed the $2.7 million tender for this season, that the Steelers would do right by him this year and restructure his contract in training camp. The only thing that would be guaranteed by Wallace signing that $2.7 million tender would be that he would have given up all of his leverage because now you sign the tender, you got to get your ass in camp. There's no way getting around that. So the only thing that would have guaranteed is Wallace giving away his leverage. Look, is there any doubt in anyone's mind that Mike Wallace at 24 years of age is going to continue to be an elite wide receiver for the next four to five years? I don't think there's any doubt in anyone's minds, or at least there shouldn't be. So if that's the case, why is Pittsburgh dicking him around here? Why not give him the money he deserves? And, you know, even if the Steelers don't sign Wallace, they may trade him to Miami or Seattle, two teams that desperately need a number one wide receiver. And then that team will likely pay Wallace. I'm not sure what Pittsburgh's asking price would be for him. If it's a first-rounder, maybe Miami or Seattle balks. But if it's two second-rounders and a third, I think a team like Miami or Seattle pulls the trigger for Wallace and thus gives him the long-term extension. Seattle did that about six years ago with the Patriots and Deion Branch. It was a similar situation. Deion Branch wanted his contract restructured. He was holding out in camp. The Patriots traded him to Seattle, and after acquiring him, the Seahawks worked out a long-term deal with Deion Branch. In the NFL, if you hold out like this and stick to your ground as Mike Wallace is, and you're deserving of the money going forward as Mike Wallace is, you're probably going to get paid. You may not get paid where you currently are. Again, there's no guarantee Wallace gets paid in Pittsburgh because they seem to be holding their ground at the moment as well. But if he gets traded to a Miami or a Seattle, he's going to get paid there. So either way, I think Mike Wallace is going to get paid. I really do. And it's ugly. The situation isn't ideal. But it's something that has to be done. In the NFL, with non-guaranteed contracts, you have to capitalize on your earning potential. And Mike Wallace, entering the fourth year of his rookie contract, has outperformed that contract over the past couple of years. He is now at the apex of his earning potential. He wants to get paid. He wants to get to get paid now because you don't know what could change tomorrow in the National Football League. I stand behind Mike Wallace, and he will get paid, maybe not in Pittsburgh, but, but then definitely somewhere else. That's on one hand, Mike Wallace. On the other hand, Maurice Jones-Drew holding out in Jacksonville. New coach Mike Malarkey says he doesn't even know Jones-Drew, hasn't even met him or spoken to him yet, and he is prepared to move forward without Maurice Jones-Drew. I support the Jaguars here. He has two years remaining on his deal, does Jones-Drew. He's 27 years of age. Unlike Mike Wallace, Jones-Drew is not a guarantee to be an elite running back for the next four to five years, which is probably what he wants his next long-term contract to cover. Also, 
Unlike Wallace, Jones Drew has already signed a big long-term deal that he isn't currently honoring. Jones Drew claims he's underpaid in the final two years of the contract. Yep, he is, but a lot of that money was delivered up front. If Jones Drew didn't want to structure the contract this way, if he's unhappy with being underpaid in the final two years of his deal, then guess what? He shouldn't have signed the contract a couple years ago if he didn't like it. He agreed to this deal just as the Jaguars did. He's 27 years old. He's paying Jones Drew now over the next four to five years would be paying him more for his past performance than his future performance. You sign the contract, you have two years remaining, you're not in the final deal, you have to live with your decision. The Jaguars are holding their ground here with Jones Drew, as they should. Because unlike Wallace, he signed for two more years, not in a rookie contract, already got his big extension from the team, doesn't have a lot of public support, certainly doesn't have the team's support, and certainly doesn't have my support on the Jones Drew issue, I am on Jacksonville's side. Now, rookie quarterbacks in camp, always a major story. Another team in Florida, the Miami Dolphins, just signed their first-round pick. Quarterback Ryan Tannehill was the eighth overall selection in this year's draft. Now, Tannehill probably won't start the year, start the year at QB. Unfortunately for him, though, he won't have a lot of great mentors to follow because that means the starting quarterback will either be Matt Moore who Dave, or David Garrard. Uh, it's going to be a tough year in Miami. It's going to be a tough year at quarterback for them once again. Same old story for them since Dan Marino retired well, well over a decade ago. Uh, the Dolphins, I think, had the worst offseason of any team in the NFL. It's a quarterback league, and the Dolphins found a way to blow a chance of acquiring any quarterback worth the damn. Um, even a guy like Chad Henney, let, he, he leaves Miami, goes to Jacksonville. Uh, a big fish like Peyton Manning doesn't land in Miami. A potential game changer like Tim Tebow, high risk, high reward, doesn't go to Miami. He goes to New York Jets. Matt Flynn, it seemed to be a fait accompli that Matt Flynn would wind up in Miami. His former offensive coordinator in Green Bay, Joe Philbin, is a new coach of the Miami Dolphins. But Matt Flynn doesn't sign with Dolphins. He signs with Seattle. So the Dolphins strike out on Matt Flynn, they strike out on Tim Tebow, they whiff on Peyton Manning, they even whiff on a guy as small as Chad Henney. And what are they left with? They're left with the Matt Moore, David Garrard, poo-poo platter, and that's what it is, poo-poo, with Ryan Tannehill behind them, a guy who many thought was a stretch being picked in the top 10 anyway, a guy who missed the early portions of training camp and, and mini camps because he wasn't signed, so he was already behind the eight ball, and a guy who's not going to have a lot of good mentors because neither Garrard nor Matt Moore is a legitimate everyday NFL quarterback, and without Brandon Marshall, I don't care what kind of headache he was, the Dolphins are without a wide receiver, or really a wide receiver, with any sort of talent. The AFC East is an improved division. The Patriots are stacked. I think Buffalo has a legit chance at making the playoffs this season. The, Jet, the Jets, excuse me, always are in the playoff hunt, as we talked about last week. So, <coughs> excuse me, I think it's going to be a long year in Miami, and it most certainly is going to be a long year at the quarterback position for them. It's likely going to be a long year in Indianapolis, but it's going to be a little better for Andrew Luck because he will be handed the starting reins right out of training camp with low expectations. And luckily for Luck, the Colts did sell off a lot of parts over the offseason, let a lot of veteran pieces go, but they still have some veteran leadership on that team who have won before. Dwight Freeney 
and uh, Mathis on the defensive side of the football, I understand, are still defensive players, not offensive players. But Dwight Freeney and Robert Mathis are still there. They're under Chuck Pagano, the Colts are transitioning from the 4-3 system to the 3-4 system. Both Mathis and Freeney have been seen at training camp thus far, covering receivers on some passing routes. And both have said, especially Dwight Freeney, how willing he is to change. Robert Mathis, Dwight Freeney, those guys are winning football players. They've won in Indianapolis before. Even though they're on defensive side of the ball, it certainly helps a guy like Lux progression to have them on his side. Reggie Wayne re-signed with Indianapolis. I was puzzled by it. I thought he would leave for sure. I thought he would fall Peyton Manning to Denver. But Wayne is there. He gives Luck a legitimate, viable, number one receiving option. I worked with Peyton Manning for well over a decade as well. Uh, the big question is the offensive line, of course. Colts have a lot of changing parts there. It's a younger O-line. They're certainly a team in transition. But Andrew Luck takes a starting job with still some key veteran pieces around him who are in Indianapolis knowing it's going to be a transition year for them. But who have accepted that. We'll see if they still accept it in November when they're several games below 500. But right now, in early August, they're accepting it. And it's a new coaching staff there. The remnants of Manning are gone. It's a new organization. You don't really have to worry about living up to the next guy because Manning was out all of last year with an injury too. From last season in Indianapolis, there's really nowhere to go but up for Andrew Luck. So it's a tough position for him. I'm not sure how successful he'll be right out of the gate. But... He has time. He has rope. Doesn't have a lot of pressure. That's the optimal situation for a rookie quarterback handed the starting job out of camp, which we think will happen with Andrew Luck. Now, Robert Griffin in Washington might be handed the starting job out of camp as well. Unlike Luck, Griffin has some pressure to him. Coaches and players are impressed by his progress. And with the success of Cam Newton in Carolina last year, someone who has a similar skill set to Robert Griffin III, there is, pressure, there is pressure on him. Mike Shanahan runs a friendly system towards him, allow him to roll out of the pocket, use his speed, throw the ball deep downfield to have some receiving options down the field than Pierre Garçon, Josh Morgan, Santana Moss. Uh, so there are some weapons there for Griffin III. Mike Shanahan has a friendly system towards him as a quarterback. The Redskins are expecting a pretty good year, as they always are, spend a lot of money, they play in a tough division with a lot of tough def defenses, most importantly, a lot of tough pass rush. I mean, you're looking at the Cowboys with DeMarcus Ware and the pass rushers they have there, you're looking at the Giants with OCU Minora, Justin Tuck, all the pass rushers they have on their defensive line, uh, it's, you know, the Eagles, if Justin Babin can get healthy, have some pass, has some big-time pass rushers as well. They've shored up their linebacking core this season, too. Uh, a lot of good defenses with a lot of big playmakers in the NFC East. Pressure is on Robert Griffin III. He does have some offensive weapons in Washington. He does, at right now, appear to be in a system that's favorable towards him and his success. But he's up against a lot. Expectations are pretty high there, relatively speaking, especially in comparison to Andrew Luck in Indianapolis. Be very curious to watch Robert Griffin III this year and, of course, throughout this month in training camp. Another thing to look out for this year, back to normal. Last year, we didn't have really any mini camp. This year, we did. So that means rookies and new head coaches have already had time to familiarize, to familiarize themselves with their teams and become comfortable with their teams. Uh, this time of year, of course, NFL training camp, ESPN, 
So excited football season begins, the barrage of coverage begins, and with that comes over coverage. ESPN is set up at Broncos camp with Neil Everett and Tom Jackson covering every step Peyton Manning makes, and anything Tim Tebow does, even something as minute as running off the field with his shirt off in the rain, constitutes major news. Now, we're sick of the ESPN coverage. Well, I can understand the Manning coverage to an extent. I can. Yes, it's over coverage. It's always going to be over coverage when you're stationed at Broncos training camp. I mean, really, training camp. Not that interesting. But Manning, theoretically, was the biggest free agent in NFL history because of Peyton Manning even returns to 80 to 85% of his former self. My goodness. I mean, the Broncos just acquired one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. So theoretically, if healthy or close to health, Manning is one of the biggest free agent signings in NFL history and even in the history of all North American professional sports. It constitutes coverage, Peyton Manning in Denver. It really does. Tebow in New York, an incredibly captivating figure, now in the biggest media market in the country. But his on-field production hasn't yet warranted the coverage he receives. I understand the frustration with the coverage of Tebow. Of course, it's over coverage. We accepted that when he moved to New York, something that I've gone on record saying I don't think will work out for a multitude of reasons. Manning in Denver is over coverage of well. It's going to be, but I can understand that more because, hey, if healthy or close to health, Peyton Manning going to Denver, the biggest free agent acquisition in league history. Big first down segment, but a lot of notes to discuss from the first week in NFL training camp. Moving on now to our second down segment, an off-field story. Cowboys owner Jerry Jones called out the Giants this week, saying the Cowboys are going to whoop the Giants' asses at Cowboys Stadium this year. Now, Dallas did improve over the offseason. They drafted cornerback Maurice Claiborne, signed cornerback Brandon Carr, two guys that will fit in well with defensive coordinator uh, Rob Ryan's schemes because Rob Ryan, of course, likes to send a lot of blitzers, likes to send guys into the quarterback in the backfield, and thus he has to have cornerbacks so he can trust to leave on an island. Claiborne's an exceptional talent, expected to make a big impact as a rookie. Brandon Carr's a veteran cornerback, been in the league for a while, a top-tier performer. So the Cowboys have improved their secondary, an area which they battled injuries last year, struggled with some depth. They have more depth now with Claiborne and Carr and health back there in the secondary. Rob Ryan likes to send his defensive ends, likes to send his linebackers to the quarterback, likes to send some safeties in as well, leaving his cornerbacks on an island. He needs guys who he can trust to cover receivers one-on-one, and Claiborne and Carr, I think, will do a big way in aiding that. Um, Speaking of aiding, does Jerry Jones aid the Cowboys? Does Dan Snyder aid the Redskins? Do these owners who meddle to the 10th degree in football operations aid or hinder their teams? The easy answer here is to say they hinder their teams. The easy answer here is to say Dan Snyder is an abomination of an owner, spends stupid money, cripples the long-term uh cripples the long-term flexibility of the franchise. Ditto for Jerry Jones. Just look at the lack of success they've had in Washington over the past decade. Look at the lack of success they've had in Dallas, relatively speaking, over the past decade plus under Jerry Jones. Only one playoff win. Uh, Talk about the most overhyped franchise in professional sports over the past 10 years. It's the Dallas Cowboys bar none. Um, So that's the easy answer, right? To say Snyder, Jerry Jones, these kinds of owners, metal, 
to their detriment and the detriment of the team and football operations. And as a result, Dallas, Washington, teams like that do not have winning programs. And I would agree with that line of thinking. I would. Jones and Snyder ultimately do more harm for their team on the field than good. A guy like Robert Kraft is the ultimate owner. He's a guy who cares about winning, but a guy who doesn't meddle. He delegates responsibility. Same with the Moore family, with the Giants, the Roonies in Pittsburgh, etc. But, I'll tell you one thing. At least Dan Snyder and Jerry Jones care about winning. They may go about caring about winning in the wrong ways. They may meddle to the 10th degree in football operations, which is a definite no-no. They may do all of that, and they deserve to be criticized for all that. But I put Jerry Jones and Dan Snyder ahead of actually a lot of professional sport owners. Because at least they care. The worst owner in sports is a guy like Jeffrey Loria, owner of the Miami Marlins, who doesn't care about winning. You win the title in 03, strip down the team, don't even attempt to sign anybody to long-term extensions. You have the lowest payroll in baseball for several years, and it's uncovered you actually have the highest profit margins in baseball because you're lying about the money you make to the league so you can still receive the, um, the, the luxury tax money from the bigger market teams. Loria swindled the Miami-Dade County taxpayers into funding a nearly $700 million stadium for him and the Miami Marlins this season. And as a result, what have the Marlins done to thank the fans for their money? Uh, they've traded away Henry Ramirez and... Other parts of the team this year. Another fire sale. After the fans funded a $700 million stadium for them. Great. I got Jeffrey Loria as a professional con artist. He is the worst owner in professional sports. He does not care. Does not give a single damn about winning. Jerry Jones and Dan Snyder are not perfect far from it. I wouldn't necessarily want them owning my favorite team. But if given the choice between a Jerry Jones or a Jeffrey Loria. Or to keep it to football, a Jerry Jones... Or the Brown family in Cincinnati? Or the ownership in Cleveland? I would pick Jerry Jones over those guys. I would. Because at the end of the day, his heart's in the right place. He does care about winning. Cares very deeply about winning. We'll do nothing. We'll stop at nothing to win. And that sometimes works to the team's detriment, but at least he cares about winning. Same with Dan Snyder in Washington. And sadly, that puts them a leg up on a lot of other owners, not only in football, but in professional sports as a whole. It is time now for a third down segment. It's our big up slow down where I will say a statement and express my agreement with it by saying big up or my disagreement with it by saying slow down. Santonio Holmes is saying he's the scapegoat for the 2011 Jets season. The Jets, of course, lost the Week 17 game against Miami last year, and Holmes was pulled off the field for arguing with right tackle Wayne Hunter. That image has constantly been replayed, and Holmes says he is the lone scapegoat for the failures of the 500-2011 New York Jets. Fair? Nope, not fair. Slow down. Has Holmes been blamed? For the Jets' failures in 2011 to come together as a football team? Of course he has been blamed. But he deserves that blame. And if you're the scapegoat, Santonio, Santonio, excuse me, that means you're the only one being blamed. And you're not. Rex Ryan. Do you live under a rock? I mean, this guy got slammed in every major media market after the Jets bowed out of the playoffs last year. Didn't even make the playoffs at 8-8, eight eight, I should say. 
in Boston. A week of talk radio was dedicated not to the Patriots making the playoffs, but to the Jets not making the playoffs. And all of Rex Ryan's bluster going for naught. Mark Sanchez. Hello? I mean, do, do we think Mark Sanchez just skated by after last season with no blame? No talk about Mark Sanchez? Come on. The lack of depth on the offensive line and defensive line. Nobody talked about that, really? Nope. Those are pretty big discussion points as well. I mean, Holmes is wrong. Number one, not the scapegoat. Rex Ryan, Mark Sanchez, I would say, got far more blame than him. But also, what are we doing here? Arguing about who got more blame for the failures of last year's team. I mean, the Jets are entering training camp, fighting for a playoff spot. And Holmes is worried about who got blamed and didn't get blamed for last season? Really? I mean, what are we doing here? That's what he's concerned with? Not with having a good practice, not with having a good season, not with turning things around, not with improving his relationship with quarterback Mark Sanchez. No, instead, Santonio Holmes is worried about who got the blame and who didn't get the blame for last year's debacle with the Jets. Instead, Holmes is worried about getting too much of the blame for what happened last year with the Jets, and that his teammates didn't get enough blame. Really? That's what we're worried about? If that's the case, the Jets won't make the playoffs yet again. You cannot win with that kind of attitude permeating your team. The Cincinnati Bengals did sign head coach Marvin Lewis to a contract extension this week. He is signed through 2014. Big up or slow down, is that a good move? I got a little shot in at the Brown family and Cincinnati ownership last segment, but I'm going to compliment them here. I say it is a good move, big up, because I'm always a supporter of stability at the head coaching position. Lewis was entering the final year of his contract in 2012. That is the um, antithesis of stability at the head coaching position, to have your head coach entering the final year of his contract. Marvin Lewis is the winningest coach in Cincinnati history. He's also the third longest tenured coach in the NFL, now at 10 seasons as head coach of the Bengals. Many of those seasons were disappointments, but it's a new start in Cincinnati. We heard all about how Marvin Lewis is his defensive coach. The Bengals' defense finally performed up to that reputation last season. They brought back most of their key figures on defense. Andy Dalton, A.J. Green still on the offensive side of the football. I like what Cincinnati did there last year. They're a team that's on the rise in the AFC North. I think Baltimore may be falling off this season. They're aging defensively. Ray Lewis said Reed getting long in the tooth. I'm not sold on Joe Flacco. Not in the least. I think Cam Cameron is a terrible offensive coordinator. I don't think he can run that offense. Um, I think Baltimore is going to take a step back this year. I think the makings are there for Cincinnati to take a step forward. And Marvin Lewis will lead them forward. Signed through 2000, 2014. Speaking of coaches, Mike Tice is the new offensive coordinator for Chicago Bears, and many think this will be a breakout year for Chicago. Big up or slow down? I also say big up to that. I'm not sold on Jay Cutler. I don't think Jay Cutler will win at a big-time level, meaning I don't think Jay Cutler will ever win a Super Bowl as quarterback, but do I think he can lead the Bears to a double-digit regular season win total, to the playoffs, maybe a playoff win, or two even? I absolutely think that's the case. I think Cutler, if healthy, can lead an explosive offense under Tice. He'll make a lot of mistakes, especially late in close games. Call it the Brett Favre syndrome. But he has a big arm, and that's the kind of quarterback that Mike Tice likes to have in his offenses. We know about Tice's reputation offensively. Uh, they certainly have the weapons. They have a great running back tandem, Matt Forte and Michael Bush. Uh, they have legitimate number one target in Brandon Marshall, who, yes, 
is a bit of a basket case, but this is his first year in Chicago. These guys usually don't cause a lot of trouble in their first year. Cutler and Marshall have apparently already went out for lunch a couple times, too, to really solidify their relationship. Brandon Marshall gives Jay Cutler something he hasn't had in Chicago yet. That's legitimate number one receiver from a talent standpoint. Devin Hester is still there, best kick returner in the game. And here's the X factor with the Bears. Above the health of Cutler, above the acquisition of Marshall, above the running backs, above Mike Tice's offensive coordinator, above Lovey Smith. Here is the X factor with the Bears. Ready? Brian Urlacher's in the final year of his deal. Lance Briggs is in the final year of his deal. Hell, even the kicker, Robbie Gould, Robbie Gould, is in the final year of his contract. I am a firm believer, and this may sound like a trite cliche, but here it is. I know that's redundant, trite cliche, but I really wanted to um, highlight how I know this sounds like a cliche, but I'm going to say it anyway, because in this case, I think it's true. I'm a big believer in guys like Urlacher and Briggs in the last year of their de deals. Entering the end portion of their NFL careers. Guys like that, they know. They know it's maybe their final shot to really make some noise. They know it's really maybe their final shot to make one last push. Maybe not for their entire careers, but maybe with the Bears organization. Maybe together at the linebacker position. And when guys like that, leaders on the team, have that mentality, I think it can take the team a long way. I think it took Baltimore a, lot, a long way last season, almost took them to the Super Bowl. And that team, I think, was flawed in a lot of senses. But Ed Reed and Ray Lewis, it was one of their final shots. They took the Ravens to the end of the AFC title game, almost won that game, beating out New England. Chicago's a much more talented team, frankly, this year than Baltimore was last year, at least on paper, especially offensively. I think if guys like Erlacher and Briggs can lead that defense with that kind of mentality, this is our last shot. I really think big things can happen in Chicago this year with the Bears. I am buying on them. Big upper slowdown. The Patriot offense in 2012 will be better than what it was in 2011, the record-setting year in which the Pats, of course, went 18-1. I say, big up. It will be. Because in 2007, you look back at it, we had Randy Moss deep, Wes Walker underneath. That was pretty much it. Took NFL defenses more than a year to figure that out. But that was a Patriots offensive attack. Pretty simplistic when you think about it. And by the time 2009 rolled around, you saw it in the Belichick documentary that aired last fall, teams did begin to figure it out. Now, they've really mixed it up. It's Brandon Lloyd on the outside. Wes Walker underneath. The tight ends on the inside. And not just the tight ends, but the depth of tight ends. Rob Gronkowski. Still maybe battling the remnants of that ankle injury and ankle surgery from this offseason. But we know that Gronk over the past two years has shown us he's the best tight end in the game by far. Aaron Hernandez is a guy who was used out of the backfield last season. Could be more of a slot receiver. He can also still line up inside at tight end. He's a versatile offensive weapon to say the least. Um, Daniel Fells has been signed. Vasante Shanko has been signed as well as um, injury insurance on Gronkowski or other tight ends. The Patriots are stacked that, at that position. And we know there's another cliche, but it's also true about a tight end. A good tight end is such a tough cover because he's too fast for a linebacker, too big for a cornerback. And the Patriots have the best tight end foursome in the league. Uh, Jabari Gaffney, Dante Stallworth on the outside too. Gaffney especially has worked well with Tom Brady in the past, who at 35 years old, you know it's going to end someday for Brady, but all reports at a patron training camp are, it doesn't look like it's going to end this year. He's reunited with Josh McDaniels, his offensive coordinator in 2007, of course. 
I think it's going to be another record-setting offensive season for Tom Brady and this Patriot offense. The Pats do have some questions on the left side of their offensive line, but they have a succession plan for Matt Light. Nate Solder was drafted in the first round two years ago. Uh, Logan Mankins is battling injuries, but Sebastian Vollmer could slide in. So the Patriots, those are the biggest questions on the left side of the offensive line. I think they'll be fine, and they'll figure it out at running back, too. They almost do. That, and that, that position, especially in the Patriot offense, is secondary. So big up. I think the 2012 Patriot offense will be better than even the record-setting 07 offense. Closing it out here with our fourth down segment real quick this week. It's the Reamer rant. Speaking of the Patriot, their uh, running back Joseph Fadai quit in the middle of a Patriot conditioning test last season, to, uh, last week to begin camp. He just quit. Adai was signed in the offseason, and according to reports, of course we'll never know this directly from the Patriots, but everyone says that Adai quit, basically, in the middle of his conditioning test. Quit. That's it. Packed up, went home, can't do it, sorry. We don't know about the disaster in Washington a couple years ago with Albert Hainsworth and that joke of him failing his conditioning test time after time again. And that's one of my biggest pet peeves of NFL players entering training camp. Why don't you show up to camp in shape? I mean, why are you failing conditioning tests? Why is that even a thing to be worried about? That should be the easiest thing in the book. As a professional athlete... Your number one priority, frankly, your only priority over the offseason is to stay in shape. Don't have to be in the best shape of your life. That's what training camp is for, to get back into football shape especially. But at least come in in respectable shape. Take care of your body. You're an athlete for God's sake. That's what you do. Your body is your business. I don't give a crap what you do off the field as long as you enter training camp in shape. That's the least you can do as a professional athlete. Take care of your body. And not every player does it. I am amazed in all sports, but we're talking about football, so we'll talk about football right now, how athletes can come into training camps out of shape and quit during the middle of a conditioning test like Joseph Adai reportedly did last week or fail it a million times like Albert Hainsworth did a couple years ago with the Washington Redskins. I'm amazed this is even a thing that we talk about. Athletes heading into training camp out of shape. It's their only concern, taking care of their bodies. And some, few, but still, some can't do it. Won't do it. Baffling to me. As a professional athlete, your only concern is staying in shape. And you can't do that. Unreal. Absolutely unreal. I have tolerance for a lot of things, tolerance for a lot of player behavior, but I have absolutely zero, zero tolerance for showing up to camp out of shape. Thank you for tuning in to episode number 11 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer. We'll be back with more training camp news, rants, and everything in between on next Wednesday. So you definitely want to stay tuned for that. As always, feel free to send me an email, areamer at bu.edu. Follow me on Twitter. My Twitter name is at alexreamer1. Also feel free to leave a comment uh, comment on the show page. Everybody, enjoy your week. Enjoy your weekend. The August is here, which means training camp is fully underway. 
We are for all your training camp coverage on footballnation.com and on the Football Nation Today podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next with more training camp news and notes next Wednesday.